This is the story of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, kingdom builder, healer. He is the King of glory. He is the resurrecting Savior. They expected a conqueror, but instead they got a servant, crucified and lifted high. And the marks on his hands left us marked for salvation. One announcement we failed to mention was the fact that the Mexico Beach Mission Team, uh, we're going to have a meeting right after the worship service in this room over here. Uh, Rhonda and Charlie will be there. They're coordinating this. And so please go uh, over there. If you're scheduled to pick up chairs today, if today's your alphabet, your day, uh, don't worry about that. Go on and we'll take care of that for you and uh, ask you to go and kind of figure out what's going on, what time you're leaving, all that good stuff, and they'll fill you in. So appreciate their, their love for that community. There, many of you have spent many, many days at Mexico Beach over the years and have a great fondness for um, that community. It's just been devastated so bad by Hurricane Michael. And so uh, if you're able to, I hope you'll go down next week and be a part of that. Um, for those of us who uh, maybe played uh, sports when we were in middle school, uh, those were kind of weird and awkward times for sure because you probably thought you were a lot better than what you actually were. And one of the things that I remember really fondly about uh, about middle school basketball was the first time we ever got to do an overnight tournament. We got to go on a trip and spend the night in a place called Clarksburg, West Virginia, which seemed like an eternity away from where I live, but it was probably three, four hours away. And it was, it was so exciting. And as we prepared to go on this trip, one of the things a few days earlier, the coach had given us a, a roster and he said, I need you to take this roster and write your name, write your height and your weight next to it because there's going to be a program, and all the teams, the 12 or 14 teams that are involved, there'll be this, this program, and you'll be able to, you know, every team will see who, who plays for them and all that stuff. And so as you can imagine, as that roster made its way around a bunch of middle school boys, what our heights look like, right, on, the, on that piece of paper. And so the first guy would start out, and, and you're like, oh, he's 5'6", so I'm at least 5'7". Well, I'm taller than him. I'm several inches taller than him. I'm 6'3", right? And by the time it was all said and done, I mean, we were the NBA giants walking into this tournament. And it was quite funny because pretty much all, everybody, at the t when you look through that thing, everybody pretty much overestimated their actual heights. And I had this, I think I've told this before, but I had this book growing up, this memories book, and it had a page for every grade uh, for me. And on the front, you know, the first page, you could fill in a lot of information, who your teacher was, you know, and all these things, but one of the things was your height and your weight, and it's humorous going back through that, because a lot of times Harrison and I'll compare where he's at versus where I'm at when he was younger, and I was almost so much taller, you know, I'm such a tall person, you know, as it is, and so uh, it's funny, you know, oh yeah, at that age, I was 5'8", uh, by then, you know, I'm not even that tall hardly now, you know, so so we all have a, the ability to over-exaggerate, don't we? We, we, we kind of have this higher view of ourselves and I don't know if I intentionally misled, but, you know, we're all self-swindlers in, in, in a way. And spiritually speaking, that's so true that we have the ability to make ourselves look better than what we actually are, right? We all have that propensity to sell ourselves to be greater than we are. And the bad thing is we do that to ourselves as well. We can take something that's evil or sinful, and in some way can we not only justify that, but we can flip it around while it's something good and it's something that we need or we're entitled to. And so we're self-swindlers. We can take wrongs and actually see something good there. 
And here's the problem spiritually when we approach life this way, when we approach ourselves this way. The more that we think we've arrived, the less we need Jesus. The more we think we've arrived, the less we think we need Jesus. And today, as we look at Mark chapter 2, and we go back to our text in, in verse 13 through 17, we see two people. One's a group of people, one's a person. One's named Levi, and he is a known sinner. He's a social outcast. Everybody knows where he stands. He knows where he stands. But you have a different group over here who is equally as sinful, yet they are polished up. They look pretty good. They are moral. They vote the right way. They do the right things. They believe in all the right causes. Yet Jesus had more harsh words to them than he ever did to those who owned their sin, embraced it, and and asked forgiveness for it, who came to Jesus broken. And so as we look at this passage, let's be careful because we're self-swindlers. And we can read it, this passage, and not see ourselves whatsoever. Only the Holy Spirit can get into your heart and reveal the truth about your condition, about what's really going on in your life. Not making excuses, not justifying, but owning it. Real repentance today. Let's look at this passage. Mark chapter 2, 13 through 17. He, Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming after him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of, son of Alphaeus, sitting at, a, at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the preaching of your word that shows us where we're at and shows us our need for you. God, we confess, I confess, that I'm guilty of thinking I'm much more righteous than I actually am. And help us to all remember we've fallen short of your glory, and if not for the grace of Jesus Christ, we would all be subject to internal separation from you. And God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the cross. May that be our focus today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. A few weeks ago, we looked at Jesus as he reached out and touched the, the, the man with leprosy. And we talked about how that in that culture, a person with leprosy was unclean. You remember we brought up here Jake, who I call Trent, right? Um, brought Jake up, and Jake represented someone with leprosy who had to tear his clothes, who had to yell out and say, unclean, stay away from me, unclean. And we saw that Jesus not only healed this man, but Jesus went above and beyond by actually reaching out and touching the man. He could have healed him without touching him, but he touched him. And we talked about how, what, what a social um, you know, disgrace that would have been for Jesus and how ceremonially unclean he would have just been just to come into this person's presence. But today we find something even more scandalous, and we may not realize it because of our culture today that we don't view this as 
scandalous as what it would have been at this time period, but this tax collector, Jesus inviting him to be his disciple and to follow him, that would have been extremely scandalous at this time. Because tax collectors, these guys were really, really bad guys in this society. Right? Nobody likes to pay taxes, right? April 15th coming up. Uh, Johnny and Charles and other accountants in here, you're working diligently to collect tax or get the tax returns done so you can get turn in so you won't get in trouble with the government, right? It's a fun time of year for sure. And we have to pay our taxes. And as you add up and total up all the taxes you paid for the year and then have to write another check maybe, you just hate doing that. That's tough, even though you know that it ultimately goes to a government that in some ways tries to provide us with police and fire and military and roads and those type of things, which we need. But during the time of Jesus, you had an oppressive government, the Romans, who had conquered these groups of people, the Hebrews being one, and so they had imposed their will upon these people, and then they were taxing them to death. And so not only did you have to pay taxes like we do, but you paid taxes to someone who was an evil oppressor. And so think how difficult that would be. And then to make matters worse, the Romans would pick Hebrews, people from their own culture, to be the ones who would collect the taxes. And as you can imagine, this would not be a popular person at all. This was a person who was a traitor. He was a sellout to his own people. This was someone who would have to demand, oftentimes maybe even twist some arms or whatever necessary to get the taxes out of people. And so this person was very, very unpopular to the point where Jewish society excluded this person from, they couldn't go to synagogue. They couldn't be part of the Jewish rites, the Jewish tradition. They were viewed worse than an outcast, than a Gentile. And so not only did this person hate it because they had to collect taxes for the Roman government, but part of the deal with the Roman government was this guy, anything he collected over and above what the Romans said he needed to collect, this guy pocketed this for himself. And so as you can imagine, too, that this person, depending upon his ability and how tough or, or, or stern he was, he could be, make a very lucrative living. He could live very well uh, in the society. And so I'm, I'm setting this up to help you understand what an outcast, what a disgust, how repulsive this person would have been in the society to the point where he could not even be a witness in the courtroom during his day. And so these tax collectors, these unclean people, were the most hated Jewish men of society. They were put there with the prostitutes. That's how bad they were looked down. Yet what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Unexpected, out of nowhere, verse 13, he's out and he's walking and the crowds are following him. He walks by this tax collector doing his job and he says, Levi, come follow me, be my disciple." And we know that even Peter and Andrew, who were fishermen and who were uh, you know, rough, tough guys of the day, even they would not have liked the idea of Levi coming to be a disciple because Levi was possibly the very guy who collected their taxes on their fish and their, and their business when they were serving as fishermen, working as fishermen. And so Jesus calls Levi. And this guy named Levi, you may not realize this, Levi is the same fella who later on we know is Matthew, who writes the Gospel of Matthew. So Jesus takes a Levi, and he turns him into a Matthew. We don't know that Jesus changed his name like he did Peter's, but we do know 
that he was referred to as Matthew later on. You know what Matthew meant? The name Matthew means a gift to God, of God to his people, a gift of God to his people. So get the irony here. A guy who stole from his people now becomes a gift to his people. He stole, but he became a gift. That's the stuff of grace. That's the stuff of Jesus. That's what Jesus does. Jesus finds us in our condition. His grace reaches down to us, just like it did to Levi. It offers us salvation. And Jesus saw in a Levi, he saw in Matthew. He sees what no one else sees, the potential of grace to radically change us. And what does Matthew, what does Levi do next? Verse 15 tells us that he begins to, to gather his friends and call his friends, and he hosts this big redemption party. In fact, Luke tells us that it was a great feast, and it's to honor Jesus who just changed his life. Look at verse 15. And, and so they're reclining in this house, and there's many tax collectors and sinners also there. And that day they would recline and eat. And the many people were just were in this house, and they were following Jesus. You know, this was, is a natural reflex of someone whose life has been radically changed by Jesus. When Jesus invites you to himself, this guy couldn't help but to say, you know what, i got to go out and find everybody I know and tell them what's happened to me. That here I am, a person who's unclean, an outcast of society, by my own choice, I chose to do this job, for sure, he did. But Jesus saw potential in him, not because of something great in him, but because of the potential of grace to do something amazing in his life. And he called him, and his reflex was to go and tell all of his buddies and all his friends. And he didn't have to go and look for sinners and outcasts because those were his normal crowd. That was the only people who would have anything to do with him. And he wanted them to hear about Jesus as well. He wanted them to hear. And I love the passion and the energy of a new believer, a person who comes to Christ. Because this is true in the year 2019, just like it was in Jesus' time. That when somebody discovers grace, when grace comes to them, when they see Jesus afresh and anew, there's this, this, this excitement. And maybe you remember it. If you didn't grow up in church, maybe you remember that yourself in your own life. How that when grace found you. I was doing a membership interview a few weeks ago, or it may have been last week, with Mitch Escobar, and the person that we were interviewing, she commented, she said, I feel sorry for people who grew up in the church and had decent lives without many difficulties and struggles. She said, they take God and Jesus for granted and don't have the experience of discovering him and his redemption and his mercy and his grace on their own. And that's so true. Those of us who just grew up into the faith, there was just no radical change. There was no just Jesus reaching out and taking us when we were marred in sin and, and we were so far from God. But people who experience that, it's amazing. My dad experienced that. My dad was a first-generation Christian. When he came to Jesus, it was, it was amazing, the life change that happened and, and the stories that he would tell coming home at night from DuPont and he would tell about all the people that he talked to about Jesus because Jesus did something radical. He was lost, but now he's found. But for those of us who grew up in church, sometimes we lose that excitement. One of my favorite authors, Paul Tripp, he says this. He says, I'm afraid that as we grow in knowledge and in biblical literacy, sometimes something dangerous often happens. We get greater and our celebration of Jesus gets lesser. What a horrible thing to have happen 
we get more excited about us, and by the very nature of that, we're less excited about grace. Hear this. If you were to live on earth for another 10,000 years, and you would continue to follow Christ, you would need His grace that next day as much as you needed it the first day that you believed. We're still all Levi. We're still all desperately in need of God's grace. And if we really, really understand the gospel, it's shocking that God would call any of us. Whether you're the kid who's been in church since nursery, or the person who lived a crazy life, and Jesus met you later on. And so Jesus called Levi, and he called him to leave everything. The life he knew, the way that he made his living, all the, 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 the uh, sin that he was involved in, and he called him by grace to come to his inner circle, be one of his disciples. Amazing, amazing. And, and, and today it's just awesome that we have a baptism because, Mac, if you don't mind me saying, I, I love Mac's enthusiasm for Jesus. Mac is, is a guy who's fairly recently really just seen Jesus and, and, and come into contact with Jesus in a, in a great and amazing way. And he's so excited. If you've been around him, all he wants to do is talk to people about Jesus and share Jesus. And what's beautiful about baptism, while baptism is a, a picture of Jesus who came and he died for our sins and he was buried and he rose again, baptism is also a picture of us and what happened with us. That when we came face to face with our sin, and that it separates us from God for eternity. And nothing we do, and nothing we can earn, and nothing we can merit on our own could ever get us to God, could ever allow us to have a relationship with him. But Jesus came. Jesus offered us salvation. And so baptism is a picture of the fact that we are dead to ourselves. We no longer live, but Christ lives in us. And that's a good thing, that Christ lives in us. You know why that's a good thing? Because there's no way that you're ever seeing God without Christ in you. He's your hope of glory, as we talked about in Colossians. And so Christ in you changes everything. It radically changes your life. And if your life isn't on a different trajectory today than it was before Christ, then you need to re-examine your profession of faith. Because Scripture clearly tells us by our fruit, will know, they'll know that we're his disciples. And so something radically changed within us. And baptism illustrates this. We are dead. We no longer live, but Christ lives in us. And so that's what today we're going to picture and we're going to see as Mac celebrates, William McClendon is his name, Mac we call him, celebrates his baptism. So I'm going to let you watch in his own words and if you don't know him, this is just Mac. Uh, my name is uh, William McClendon, but I like to go by Mac. Uh, I started believing in Christ. Actually, when I was a little boy, my faith became real about 10 years ago. Now, I'm not saying that I um, listened all that well, but I did learn a lot of life's lessons out of that. But he showed me a great example of how he can change your life this past year I've really learned started learning the Bible and just started learning to uh, what 
peace and joy and salvation is really all about. I want to learn to be a better disciple and uh, spread the word. First John chapter 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Grace Church, uh, Pastor John, I'm going to uh, uh, help you out on this one. Uh, let's see more baptisms and let's see more, uh, more praise and just give all the glory to our God. Like I said, if you haven't gotten to know this guy, you need to get to know him. Yeah. Careful, I'm going to, I know it may not be manly, but I'm going to hold your hand, all right? Yeah, I'm going to help you in here, all right? You did some more curls. <laughs> Mac, have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation? I have. Well, based upon your profession of faith, my brother, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. Where's your towel? I'll grab it for you. All right, good deal. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, man. Isn't that awesome? I think this is three weeks in a row we've had a baptism. And I know Mark, he doesn't get tired of bringing, setting up the baptistry for us and getting it ready. He said that's a, a, a duty of pleasure um, to be able to do that every week. And it would be great if we could do that. Well, unfortunately, God's grace isn't appreciated by everyone. And we see in verse 16, we see the self-righteous sinners, those who don't think they're sinners, and they get the disdain, they get the rebuke of Jesus. Look at verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? The second class of sinners, these self-righteous, arrogant, denying of their need sinners, they're sinners, but they refuse to recognize the fact that they were sinners. And I think self-righteousness is the greatest enemy of the work of God, I really do. Because when we're self-righteous, not only do we think we're better than those around us, and we've achieved more than those around us, but we forget what the gospel is all about at its core is no one measures up. Everyone falls short. And so self-righteousness, Jesus, you'll see throughout the book of Mark, Mark he'll deal with these Pharisees. These guys are the villains. They're the, uh, the enemies. Uh, they're the ones that come into the picture often, and they're the gatekeepers of Judaism during the time of Jesus. And they were more concerned about enforcing their legal codes and maintaining their forms of Judaism, their systems, than they were of truly administering God's law. And so while Jesus never broke God's law, he did not have any respect whatsoever for their traditions, their systems, and he wouldn't let the fine points of the way, things that they said were the way to operate to control him. And as we look at the Pharisees and their, their lives, none of us can say, you know, oh, philosophically, that's where I'm at. I'm a, I'm a Pharisee. We wouldn't say that. But practically, so many times we can fall into this category without ever realizing it. How so? Let me tell you. First of all, the Pharisee's concern was not his sin before a holy and righteous God, but that he looked good and righteous in the eyes of other people. Let me say that again. The Pharisee's concern was not his sin before a holy and righteous God, but that he looked good and righteous in the eyes 
of other people. They made great effort to appear righteous, although they were actually living in sin. And Jesus calls them out again and again. And the thing is with our sin, as I mentioned from the beginning, and the thing is with those areas where Satan has deceived us, the father of lies, that oftentimes we've gotten to the point in our life where not only do we excuse those things, but we can celebrate them in some ways. And one of the things that we try to combat this here at Grace Church, and I've talked a lot about this, is this idea of fight club. And if you're unfamiliar with that term, if you're newer here, Basically, that's just a, a, a cool name for this these, a group, small group of people who get together that are going to be real and honest with one another about where they are in their spiritual life. It's breaking down the pretenses. It's, it's cutting down the, you know, I've got to say the right things and do the right things and appear the right way. And it's an opportunity and put you in a situation where other people with you say, you know, I want to just deal head on with this stuff. I want to deal head on with sin. No more playing games. No more religious games. Let's just deal with this. And, and Jerry was telling me before church today, he said it was pretty cool. Some of the middle school girls asked their leader, Aaron Huggins, Huggins if they could have a fight club. And she said, of course. You know, yeah, let's get with Jeremy and we'll figure that out. Fight club is not just for guys, all right? It's not just for men. It's for everyone. It's for anyone, and you don't have to call it that if you don't like the name, but you just get together on a regular basis and you fight sin. In fact, we say the three rules of fight club is know your sin, fight your sin, and trust your Savior. Know your sin, fight your sin, and trust your Savior. And you don't let pride stop you from confronting your sin. In fact, I encourage you maybe to ask someone in your group, if you are in a group or have some close Christian friends, where do you see the sin of pride in my life? And don't get defensive. Don't have an answer ready to combat and excuse it. Just own it. Hear them out. Where do you see pride in my life? Because the truth is, as I said, we're self-swindlers. And sin will ultimately bring destruction upon our life if we don't deal with it head on. You know, and I think it's well established, and we know this in our mind, those of us who attend church even on a semi-regular basis, we know that sin, if you play around with it, it will bring destruction on your life. We just know that. We know that sin will lead you to a place where things will just, just explode, but the greatest tragedy, and this is where it gets the, the gospel gets to our heart, the greatest tragedy isn't the fact that you're going to blow up your family or blow up your personal life or blow up your job. That's not the greatest tragedy. The heart, when we get to the point where offending God is a bigger deal than hurting my reputation or messing up, truthfully, the, the, the ease maybe I have and the comforts I have in life as it exists as I know it, then you know the gospel is penetrated deep into you. Because you care what God thinks. You're not concerned as much with your reputation as you are with what God thinks. Because we're called, and our purpose is to live for the glory of God. We live for His glory. And we bring shame upon the name of God when we even try to manage our sin in a way that I don't want to look bad or I don't want others to see it. And, this, and here at Grace, we hope to cultivate this this, this, this culture of humility and brokenness. We want things like the middle school girls saying, hey, can we get a fight club going? 
and lots of people in groups just being real and honest with one another. Because those who are pretty much only Sunday morning Christians sitting here, glad you're here. But the truth is, it's easy to come in, to put on an appearance, everything's fine, shake hands, it's good, and you walk out and nobody really knows you. You don't even know you. And you hide behind religiosity, saying the right things, knowing the right things, but your life is full of laziness spiritually. We want to confront that. So the Pharisees cared about what others thought. They cared about their reputation more than they did what God thought. The second thing, the Pharisee loved power and influence more than truth. The Pharisees loved power and influence more than they loved truth. You know, it's really sad, as, particularly as a pastor, but for any Christian to read about another pastor who, who falls, who did something and, you know, his integrity, his character is revealed, his ministry is in shambles. And, and I was actually reading this morning about a famous pastor who just recently was fired by his elders because of his love for money and his love for power. And I don't know if you follow any of this stuff. I, I was kind of late. It happened last month. But it's, it's a really sad situation where a guy who started a church with 18 people and built it up to 12,000 people, and then he's forced out of his own church, and his elders weren't even aware that he'd ran up $42 million of debt. I don't know what, what was, where they were at, okay? But they ran up $42 million of debt on all their campuses while he just went on uh, pleasure cruises and vacations, exotic vacations on the church's dime. And it's terrible, and that's exactly what happens. I, I see a pattern. There's a pattern, and it starts in isolation. It does. It starts with isolation. And a lot of times, people in ministry can justify it all. Well, they don't understand what I'm going through, or they just don't get it, or whatever, or you know, I can't, I can't really have community with them. And then they isolate themselves, and pride begins to seep into their life. And they have these delusions of strength, like, I'm, I'm stronger, I can handle this, you know, I, I can do this. And then they begin to have an entitlement attitude, and it starts right here. In their mind, they begin to think, you know what, I deserve that. Or that, you know, why should they have that and I not have that? And they begin to justify these things. And then soon, they lack integrity, they lack character, their heart is moved from being a saint to being a swindler, a self-swindler. And that's what pride does to you. And that's what pride did to these Pharisees. They loved power and influence more than they loved God. Look at John chapter 11. And look at verse 45 through 48. This was right after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. So Jesus' popularity had soared. Here he is raising someone from the dead. The evidence is right there in front of the Jewish people. And it says in verse 45, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And what did they do? Did they celebrate? Wow, the dead have been raised again? No. Verse 47, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council together, and they asked, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Do you see that? 
that Jesus is doing these miracles, these incredible things, and here they are saying, our power is being threatened. What's going to happen? The people will begin to follow Jesus, and we won't have the influence that we once had. And the Pharisees were very influential during this time. In fact, the puppet king, Herod the Great, actually was careful even not to offend the Pharisees, history tells us, because so many people looked to the Pharisees as the models and as their religious leaders of the day. And here you had these people who claimed to speak for God, who claimed to do things for God and lead worship for God, and they were concerned about their power, their status, their position, and Jesus Christ, God himself, standing right in front of them doing incredible miracles, yet they plotted and ultimately took him to the cross. It's amazing. And it shows us the same thing, how that we can be swindled by sin. How that we can have the Word of God in front of us every day. We can be taught it once a week in, in K-group a couple times a week. Maybe even be with other people and, 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 and pretending to be going through the motions of accountability and openness and authenticity. But in reality, God's right there and we're doing something totally different. In fact, later, earlier in John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40, he tells this to the religious leaders of the day. He says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So he says, you got it right in front of you. You're searching the scriptures. Many of these guys had large portions of scripture memorized in the Old Testament. They knew, they knew it by memory. They could recite it. Yet God himself stood in front of them, performing miracles, and they rejected him. They rejected him. What does that tell us? You can know the Bible. You can know theology. You can argue and debate with the best of them. But maybe the truth is you just love knowledge. Maybe you like any kind of knowledge. Maybe the Bible just happens to be where you're at and you like to learn about it. But you like other knowledge as well because you just find great, great pleasure in knowledge. But there's no real passion for Jesus. There's no real passion for his name and his kingdom. And that's a pitfall that we all can fall in. Because knowledge is incredible. It's important. We need to know our theology. We need to have an answer to those who oppose us. But we need to love Jesus more than we love knowledge. A lot more than we love knowledge. So look what happens. Verse 16. They ask the disciples, the Pharisees, why is this guy eating with tax collectors and sinners? How could a respected rabbi be eating with these sinners? How could they be doing this? They couldn't comprehend why Jesus would be with these people, hanging out with just the the sinners of the day. And look what Jesus says. He defends his ministry. Verse 17, he says, When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Sometime back, I was called and asked to meet someone at the ER because of a crisis, a tragedy that had happened. And I rushed there, and the person was doing the, had just rolled in as well, and they got to the little desk, the little intake window, and they were in serious trauma. I mean, they were, they were in bad, bad, bad shape. 
Yet the lady doing her job, she acted like the person had a common cold or something, and they, she began to ask insurance information and various things, and just going, and, and here's this person nearly passing out with pain, incredible pain, and she's processing paperwork like he's there for a well check or something. And I, honestly, finally I had enough, and I, I just yelled out, I said, get him back to see someone now! Like, he is in trauma, he's in crisis. It doesn't take a, a doctor to realize that. And they literally perked up and they, and they took him back and it was a good thing that they did. And here's the thing. If you aren't excited about Jesus, it's because you don't think you need him. You think church is a well check for you. You think it's, you know, I, I, I know this thing and truthfully, I probably know more than Pastor John does, honestly. And, you know, I, I love listening to these preachers throughout the week and I, you know, that's where I get my, I get all the benefits of the, of the scripture and, and, and I'm just growing and, and so on and so on. I'm not really sure that I even need church. There's a lot of people like that because it's all here for them. They think that it's all about just gaining more and more knowledge and you put them in community and they, and they freak out because, whoa, I don't know how to act. I don't know what to do, how I should treat them or, because that's where the gospel flushes itself out in community. It's how you love people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. And so is your knowledge flushing itself out in community and love for other people? Or are you content with just, oh, maybe go for my well check today. Go and I'll, I'll just I'll sit through it. Hopefully we'll be out there by, by noon and Go to lunch and yeah, be a nice day, I guess. See some people. I think when we realize I'm a sinner, I'm broken, I'm in desperate need of a Savior. And if not for Jesus, man, I'm eternally damned. Yet when we catch ourselves comparing and saying, you know what, I'm glad I'm not kind of like that guy. Or I'm glad I've never done this. Those are the signs of a Pharisee. And we see that in our own hearts, don't we? I see it in myself, comparing. I'm glad I'm not like that person. Grace needs to visit you. The gospel needs to visit you when you find yourself in that situation. Because sin is a sickness. And we all are ridden with sin, full of sin. And we need a Savior. And as parents, let's be careful that we don't raise little Pharisees, people who we constantly make sure exteriorly they measure up, but we really aren't that concerned about what's going on in their heart. We, we're, we don't even know how to speak into their heart. I was actually reading this morning as I was going over my notes and just cross-referencing some stuff at the last minute, and I was reading, and, and, and the guy was writing, and he said, you know why kids oftentimes, most of the time when they go off to college and they just go wild and they go crazy? Why is that? Because the truth is you gave them no really option when they were in school. You, you, you controlled their environment. You controlled the way they acted and reacted and you made sure they weren't at this party and that party and those are all good things. But you didn't do anything to speak to the heart and so when they're removed from those restraints, when they are able to go off on their own and make whatever decisions, they didn't change. Their heart just began to be revealed. 
It was there all along, but now it's just evident. One book that Michelle and I, I think I brought up the wrong book. Michelle, if you can grab that for me, the, that one underneath, that top one. Uh, one book that I, no, the other one. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. One book that Michelle and I read almost 20 years ago, and I think Justin Gravely, didn't you do a class here on this, Shepherding a Child's Heart? This is a great book. And I encourage every parent to read this book because this book talks about the very thing that I just mentioned, which is parenting to the heart, not just to the external behaviors. Because it's easy to just jump on behavior and yell at behavior, correct that, change that, with no effort toward, let's talk about why. Let's talk about what's in your heart. And God's the one that can change the heart. You can do all the right things and your kid still go wild. But you know what? We are called to speak and shepherd our children and their hearts, not just their behavior. You know, one thing I was reading, I think it was in this book, that said that if you find yourself telling your kid, I would have never done that when I was your age, or I can't believe you did that, that's self-righteous parenting itself, because you're saying, I'm above that. You know, I, I, I was above that sin. I, you know, there's no way I could have done that. You put you in a different category, kid, right? But the truth is, we're all susceptible. And by the grace of God, you didn't do those things. And so a different approach, a totally different attitude of the heart and of the spirit. So let's make sure that we don't fall into that. In this second statement, the final thing in verse 17, Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What was he saying? His point was, to the people who think they are righteous, I have nothing to say. But those who know they have a need, I've come for you. And the same thing is true today as it was in Jesus' time. He comes to those who will acknowledge their sin. He comes to those who will say, I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. I need salvation. And it's not just, I did that, now it's done. Salvation is a point in time when that really happens, that transaction. We have Jesus' righteousness. He takes our sin, the great exchange. That happens at a point. But as Christians, as we grow, we continue to fall back on that gospel again and again and again, that God, it's your grace. It's only by your grace that I can do anything. It's only by your grace that I can live the life you called me to live. Because in myself, in my flesh, I go crazy. My mind, maybe not my actions, but my mind, my gossip, my lies, my lust. I need the gospel in all these areas. So, Apply it. Make it. Make the next step. Community. Real community. We cultivate small groups, and those are great. They're a great, really, a first step to get you in community. But I encourage you to take the, a next step. And many of you are where you're actually getting into intrinsically, I mean, I'm sorry, intentionally, in, um, I forgot my wording here, intentionally intrusive, Jesus-centered community where you will have people asking you the tough question where you will, your sin, you can expose it and not be judged, but be loved and given grace and encouragement to continue to produce the fruit that God's called you to produce. And that's what God wants from us. People who live for Him and honor Him. 
not just by the things we say, that we say, but by the way that we live our lives, the things that we do. Let's pray. God, uh, we admit, I admit that we're all guilty of being a Pharisee in so many ways at so many times. I know that just from preparing for this message, I, I, I know that many things I say and many of the ways that I judge other people uh, are, are, are just show that I just not a grace graduate. I just haven't arrived. And God, I thank you for that reminder. I thank you for your word that gives us truth. I thank you for the body of Christ that can speak truth if we allow, speak truth into our lives and allow us to see things in our lives that we don't naturally recognize. And God, for the person in here today who is, is living in known sin, they've, they've embraced a lifestyle, choices that are contrary to your word, God, I pray that your spirit convicts them if they need salvation today, they'll put their faith and trust in Jesus. And they'll find only the righteousness that you can provide, not because they earn it or work for it, but because they realize and they're humbled and they repent today. God, for the Christian here that needs a community, needs other people in their lives, God, help them to be willing to step out and to ask a few people to get together, God. And those of us who are in Fight Club, help us to be aware of the fact that it can easily turn into something that's social and not really um, something that's getting uh, serious in our lives about sin and about really looking to you as our Savior, God. I pray that you'll keep us on point, on purpose for that. And God, I pray that you'll be glorified. I pray that we'll just continue to develop a culture here of humility and brokenness. And we thank you for the gospel and for the cross. And we never, ever tire of that. Thank you for Mac and his baptism. Thank you for the way that you worked in his life. And what an encouragement to us that is today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.